Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we have the Eric Winters. Hello, Eric. Good morning from Sydney, Australia, Pete. I'm wow. very pleased to be with you. Wow, this is this is a long distance call, this one's so all the way from Ireland to, to, to Australia. So fantastic. Listen, Eric, thanks for getting up so early. Thanks for coming on the show. So tell us. Eric, who are you? What do you do? And where are you from? Well, you're speaking to a, a pre-caffeinated version of Eric just at the moment, Pete, but I'm, I'm coming around. We're fixing that as we go. I'm a self-leadership coach, a black belt hand washer, and the author of a book, Swipe Right on Your Best Self. I have I never, to ask, how did you get yeah. black belt? <laughs> well, it's, it's self-assigned, Pete. I'd never okay. planned to learn quite so much about uh, hand hygiene and, and how we're supposed to get the amount of time and the, the wrist washing. And my goodness, we had no idea before, did we, how to wash our hands. We, we thought we did. Put them under the tap, run them under a towel. That, Quirky that old it. times, right? You know, it's just, uh, but it's all different. That's, that's the, the world we live in uh, just at this particular time. Absolutely. Yes. So you're, you're an author. Well, so. well, I've given it to myself. <laughs> <laughs> so you were saying you you basically you're an author there and also you talked about really you know your well your skills talk to us tell us what, what's, what's yes. your forte yeah the, the area that I've, I specialized in so I'm, I'm an executive coach a workplace coach but the area that I've really focused on is uh, self-leadership how do we manage ourselves good before we go on to lead others to get the best out of uh, others in our teams and organizations we first got to attend to ourselves and manage our own minds so that we can meet challenges uh, more effectively i was rereading stephen covey's famous seven habits of highly effective people in a little while and I've, I've got to confess i put off reading that book for the first 15 years i thought it was too cheesy the title and uh, i didn't like the look of it. it looked too american and when i finally got around to reading it it's it's a classic it's brilliantly put together. But the first three habits that Stephen Covey puts forward for being highly effective are all about managing yourself, taking care of yourself first before you seek to uh, influence others helpfully. So that's the area that I work in, uh, in particular, helping people to manage their minds to meet life's challenges effectively. I'm going to go straight off the deep end here. Uh, out of curiosity, I think you're probably well able for it. Um, I'm just interested the way it's almost you talk about the, you know, the self and the leadership almost as like it's a second or third party. Ah, yes. Well, one of the, the ways that we actually do get to manage our minds effectively is by cultivating a helpful relationship to the self. So if we get caught up in, uh, in I, we absorb ourselves in the sense of uh, uh, me and I and the ego, 
then we actually lose our, or our ability to choose what we're going to do is diminished. So it's helpful to talk about the self as something that we can be in relationship to, because it gives us greater choice in life. I mean, yeah, so that, that's, that's about, a bit of a mic drop for people, right? Because it's going, well, that that voice that is talking to me, that's me, right? It's like going, no. Uh, <laughs> you're right. No, it is a part of you. It, absolutely. We're not saying it's it's someone else. No, it is a part of you. And we all have a, uh, a voice. It's, it's often it's quite critical, self-critical voice. It tends not to spend most of its time congratulating us for how well we're doing. Uh but it is just a part of us. And when we can be in relationship to that part of us, then we get to decide, well, is what I'm uh, telling myself right now, is that helpful? Uh, is that actually going to trigger a fire in my belly to do what matters, what's important? Uh, or is it actually going to distract me? Is it going to hold me back? So, uh, yeah, we need to get in relationship. We need to be discriminating about the things that a part of us is telling us. We need to consider what they are. We, we can't afford to be uh, naively gullible and just take on board. You know, every time we say, oh, I really stuffed up there. If, if you go down that track of really agreeing with that part, no, I really did, yeah. You never get anything right. No, God, that's true. No, I don't ever get anything right. Nothing ever goes right if you always stuff up. We can work ourselves up quite quickly into a very steep downward spiral. And uh, you're making the point earlier on, I think that, yeah, that voice is not us in our entirety. We are not our thoughts. We have thoughts. We have them. And the more skillful we can get at noticing what we're telling ourselves, the stories that we tell ourselves, the more skillful we can then become at stepping back just a little and considering them, weighing them up, deciding we want to go with them or deciding whether we're going to be a, a little bit sceptical, not get into a fight with ourselves, that's, that's pointless, but they're just a, a little bit sceptical. Not everything we say to ourselves is always 100% true. And in fact, an awful lot of the time, it's just fantasy. <laughs> you, you dropped the e-bomb, so I'm going to bring it in. So talk to us about ego. I'll let you drink your coffee mm. first. <laughs> We're holding. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, well, the, the ego is this, this sense of self. So we, we, all, we all live, and here's another big idea. We all have the, the idea that we are... Uh, continuing beings, that the, the Pete that exists right now is the Pete that existed yesterday and uh, you existed uh, a year ago, say. We've all got this experience. And um, people talk about this autobiographical self. You know, is Eric's here today and uh, Eric was doing things last week and Eric was uh, doing things a year ago. We have a sense of, of continuation. Actually, it, that's a, a little bit of a, a fantasy. We do not exist as static beings with a, a fixed ego, with a fixed identity. We don't have a fixed identity. We truly are uh, beings. So it's a verb. You and I are processes. You are peating right now, Pete, and you were peating last week and a year ago. But you're not the same. You are not the same. You are more like a fire. 
And if you start a fire uh, and you keep putting bits of fuel on it in a in a an hour's time, it's not the same fire that it was before. It's changed shape. It's uh, reorganized itself a bit. It's burnt up a bit more fuel. It's in the same place. Sure, it's it's. Uh, it's evolved, it's developed from the previous fire. But fires happen. They are processes that happen. And human beings are also processes that happen. We are not fixed. And this is good news because it means the things that you were doing last week, your nature last week or last year, the things you did, that was last year. This next moment that's happening has never happened before. And each of us gets to choose how we're going to you know, decide to engage with this next moment, how we're going to be, how we're going to engage with others, how we're going to show up in the world, and what qualities we're going to embody. It's a choice, and it has nothing to do with what we did yesterday. We all have a great deal more freedom, Pete, than a lot of people think. So... What part of you chooses what? What does the ego choose? Does the ego choose the past or the future, or what does it choose? Well, the, the ego isn't a uh, isn't a choosing part. It's an it's an I, it's a sense of self. It's a sense. Can of Can you break self. that down for me? Because you said that before, and I'm very curious. Yeah, yeah. So you are the, the, the Pete that does endure. The Pete that does continue to exist today and next week and week after is the part that uh, observes and notices the world. You have a part that can see the world and you can notice your feelings. You can notice what you're telling yourself. So all of us have uh, an ongoing uh, element of ourself. And I, and I don't want to suggest that these are really separate little Pete's or Eric's inside of us. It, it's not. It's, a, it's something we do. We have a part of us that can notice the world, and that goes on, that endures. At times, we'll have an idea, and let's say it's, uh, I am, uh, I'm a good parent, perhaps. No, but it's an idea, I'm a good parent. And when we buy into that idea, take it seriously, then what we're doing is creating a sense of self on the fly, creating a sense of self, that is a good parent. So we have the idea and then we buy into it, take it seriously. And now we have, and it's an experience though. It's an experience of, a, of an enduring part. We think, yeah, I am this, I am a good parent. It's a fixed thing. And that's our ego taking on board ideas. The thing about ideas, Pete, is that the, this, this ego, the sense of self, defends them. It feels like ideas, beliefs, are a part of us. They actually are a part of us. So let's say I am a, I belong to some political party, political party A. It doesn't matter which one. And B, you, you belong to political party B. And you sit down with me and we have a drink. You say, Eric, you're, you're, you're really wrong about what we should be doing about housing, say. And you start attacking my ideas vigorously. When we have a, a well-developed ego, and I think I really am my ideas, you know, I am a, whatever it is, let's say a, a, a Labour supporter, I, 
I'm not someone who supports Labour. I am a Labour supporter. I am that. When you now attack my ideas, I feel like you're attacking me. We're not talking about the ideas. We're talking, you're talking about me. You're trying to say a part of me is wrong. A part of me is defective. So this idea of ego, it's, it's, a, it's a fantasy that we are our thinking, that we are our ideas, our beliefs, that we are our uh, memories. These are things that we can, that we have, but it's not us. So the, the ego is, it, it can be, I'm talking about it like it's a bad thing, you know. <laughs> However, it's actually really helpful for you, Pete, to think, actually, you know what? I am a competent and caring podcast host. That's a useful idea for you to take on board and to own. I believe in treating people well. These are ideas uh, are useful for you to, to absorb and believe as though they are true. Because it, then it bolsters your sense of self, your ego, and you will now behave in that manner. So the ego is a, it's a tricky thing. There are times that we need to use it. It's helpful. It's really helpful for us to have an ego, but we need to be uh, on guard. We need to be on guard because it's, it is more flexible. It's more malleable than many of us know. And it, we can end up uh, defending ourselves unnecessarily and getting into fights we don't need to have. That's interesting. I, mean, I suppose, and, and as you speak there, it's like, it's understanding the difference between what's fact and what's story. I mean, I, yes, I'm a podcaster and yes, I'm a host. Whether I'm any good or not is, <laughs> is an opinion. Um, you know, so it's, as you say, it's useful truth, um, but also as, yeah. maybe is, is it just being aware, I suppose, maybe a good start for, for that. Yes. Yeah. And awareness is the start. Absolutely. If we want to get better at leading the kind of lives we'd like to live, to have the impact that we'd like to have, uh, to be the parents and the partners that we'd like to be, then self-awareness is number one in becoming more effective in life. Mm. We need to notice, notice what's going on on the inside, what we're telling ourselves, what the stories are, and also get better at noticing Actually, the outside world, notice how people are responding to us. Notice what's real and get so the ability to get out of our heads is a good one. Mm. It's, uh, it, it's one of the, I call them the human predicaments. One of our human predicaments is that we have a tendency to live half of our life in our heads, planning for the future, thinking ahead, what I'm going to do tomorrow. What I've got to get done, what might happen when I have that, that conversation tomorrow, what they might say. Or if they say that, well, then I might say this. <laughs> I bet they'll say that. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll be ready because then I'll say this. So we rehearse. We can, spend, uh, we can spend huge chunks of our life in a virtual reality, rehearsing things that may never happen. And not just once, but again and again and again. And if we're not rehearsing a future that hasn't happened, we're reliving and rehashing things we've done in the past. So we've—it's uh, crazy, isn't yeah, it? When you when you describe it like that perfectly, it's uh, like it's like going. No wonder I feel tired. <laughs> I've 
spend half the day just beating yourself you, you, up. You, you, <laughs> well, you are, and it's very compelling. It's you know, it's not like we do it once. I'll just have a quick uh, think about what I'm going to do tomorrow. But, you know, rehearsing is a good idea. It's a good idea to plan ahead. Mm. I planned ahead for our conversation here. I thought, oh, yeah, I want to make sure I've got my uh, my phone charged. You know, I want to make sure I've got my screens laid out, my mic connected. Good idea to plan ahead. But the nature of the human mind is it, it often it doesn't do it once. It will keep checking and then it keep going around and around and around. And it's a waste of time. Uh, and yes, as you say, it's exhausting. Living uh, fearfully, worried, rehashing, just rehearsing repeatedly uh, what might happen is very, very tiring. And we could be doing other things. Of course, it's uh, it's a waste of, e- of energy mm. and time. I mean, like like a scuba diver flip, back flipping off a boat. I mean, that leads us very nicely to your book. So your book is Swipe oh. Right on Your Best Self. Talk to us because there, there we go. And it is, it's, it's all about, you know, so it's described there as what stops us from pursuing our biggest dreams in life. You know, why mm. do we hold ourselves back from being fully seen and heard? as a real sales profession and personally. And it's not a million miles from what we've just been talking about. You know, my, mm-hmm. my segue wasn't that bad, I hope. Um, <laughs> you're a nine. <laughs> that's, that's, it's just your opinion. A, a you know? good nine. A good nine, Pete. A good nine, Lester, I'll, I'll take it. I'll, anything over a six, I'm, I'm there, you know. So, But no, talk to us. Talk to us about the book. Uh, so, yes, and a few years ago, a creative care nurse here in Australia T- taking care of hundreds of people in the last few days or weeks uh, on earth was hearing the same regrets again and again. She's not, I'm not saying everyone had a regret, but she was hearing from some of them, some of the people who had in their last hours or days were voicing to her. It's a very intimate time, as you can imagine. They would voice to her quietly what their personal regrets were. And she heard one regret more than any other. And it was this, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself and not the life that others expected of me. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself and not the life that others expected of me. My book is about how can we all develop courage so that we can author our own lives, decide for ourselves what matters. And these two things are, they're a piece of work. You know, working out what is personally important is is a piece of work because the world out there has a lot of ideas for what people of your gender and of your age and from your country and with your colour, how you ought to behave. There's a lot of messaging from society about what's, what sort of behaviour will be approved of, what will be uh, supported and encouraged and endorsed by society, and uh, what will be condemned. So we're, by and large, societies don't like people to express too much individuality. There's a certain way, and we, we take a lot of it for granted, but you and I, we're both wearing shirts, open collar shirts, and partly, you know, it's it's a, it's, nice. it's a it's an effective piece of clothing. But our cultures 
have encouraged us to do that. There are other parts in the world where people don't throw on this kind of a garment. They would get looked at in a funny way if they put on a shirt, the kind of shirt that we're wearing. But we do this not just with what we wear and how we, we dress, but in how we behave to one another. So we've all absorbed sort of messaging from society. And a lot of it is harmless and, and even supportive and a good idea. But a lot of it, uh, I propose in the book, is toxic. We are drip-fed uh, a diet of junk values by our culture, uh, especially in the West. I can't speak for the, uh, the East, but the kind of the, the Western culture that we're in, we're told a lot of things that uh, are not true and will not take us to a happy place. And with that, I'll take a quick swig of caffeine. Yes. I just, I mean, it's, it's more, I suppose, an educated guess. Maybe I'm, I'm kind of curious to know, do you have a sort of a, a wet finger in the air figure of how much of our values are junk, you know, as in external, not necessarily serving us and actually our own values sort of innocently mixed up amongst them? Is, is there a split? No, I, I don't have a number, but we're, we're massively uh, influenced by uh, the culture we're in, we, we're just bombarded by advertising and the media and TV shows. And they're all telling us that to lead a happy life, you know, you need to be, uh, you've got to be wealthy. You've got to be hugely popular. You've got to be good looking and you need stuff. It's really important that you have stuff. And luckily for us, all of these organizations provide stuff. They've got stuff. And the messaging is, if you feel as if were you to ever feel a sense of lack mm. in your life, you can fill that sense of lack by buying our, our scent or our watch or our car, and it will satisfy you and you will be enduringly happy once you buy our product. And they say, and they say, well, by the way, you know how we said, if you feel a sense of lack, well, Here's why you need to feel a sense of lack, because actually you are not enough as you are. Look at these images of other people who have got our, our, our perfume or our smell. Look how popular they are. Look how happy they are, how attractive they are. So we are continually told by advertising. It's how it works. It, it creates a sense of absence in our lives. Otherwise, we wouldn't buy these things. So we're told that, no, as you are, you're not enough. But Help is on the way because we've got a thing. And if you buy our thing, then you will fill the gap. And if, if you don't fill the gap, then you haven't bought enough of it. So you need to keep, repeat as necessary. It's like a pres prescription, a doomed prescription. Repeat as necessary until symptoms disappear. But the symptoms won't disappear because actually we don't become happy. Well, one, you cannot become uh, enduringly popular and good-looking and wealthy and successful <laughs> through buying these products. And even if you you were there, you're going to be told again that you're still not enough. The other thing that our culture does is that it tells us that the most important thing, or well, one of the most important things, is to feel good now. You know, because you're worth it. You know, don't delay. You need to feel comfortable. And we lead very comfortable lives. And we can, if we feel a bit cold, we can turn up the heating, you know, and vice versa. 
bit too humid, put on the aircon. And society and the culture we're in encourages us to feel good and not to talk about bad feelings. So if someone asks you, Pete, in Ireland, and I'm guessing this applies equally to Ireland as it, as it does to Australia, if someone asks us on the street, how are you doing? How are you doing, Pete? There is really only one socially appropriate answer. There's one flavour. So, Pete, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Yeah, good, thanks. <laughs> That's right. It's got to be some flavour of, yeah, good, no, great, uh, maybe awesome, uh, but it's got to be positive. Mm. Our, our culture does not give us permission to acknowledge mm. discomfort. Discomfort is taboo. You, you're not allowed to say, actually, I've had a really hard day. I've had an argument with my partner. I'm a bit anxious. I've got a lot of bills to pay right now. I'm not sure about you know, the work that's coming up. I'm not sure what's going to be happening there. Uh, my mum's sick. I, I've, I don't know. We, we can't talk about what's not, what's hard. So our culture, it robs us of the permission to honestly talk about real life experience. Now, this has a one particularly, particularly toxic downside because we've been trained not to acknowledge difficulty with each other. We take it one step further and we also try not, we try to avoid feeling discomfort with ourselves. So we push it away. We've been told we've got to be positive, relentlessly positive. Positivity, good. We don't want any of this dwelling in misery, no negativity. So when we feel bad, our tendency tends to be to, to shove it away. Oh, it'll be fine. It'll be nothing. We, we have lost, well, we are losing, I think it's getting worse. We are losing the ability to actually acknowledge human discomfort, and, and be with it for a while. We've got to make ourselves feel better now. And if we allow that idea to really influence us, that we mustn't feel bad, then is it any wonder that we, we drink a lot to soothe ourselves, that we eat a lot? to soothe ourselves, that we distract ourselves a lot on uh, the internet or what have you, or on Netflix, to soothe ourselves. There's a lot of soothing and distraction going on at the moment. Uh, strategies to make us feel good now. And this is, uh, this is a serious problem, I'd suggest, because if you're going to lead a courageous life, if we're going to avoid the number one of the of one number one regret of the dying, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself. If we're going to have that courage, it's going to come with discomfort. That's how it works. Applying for jobs which are beyond your current level of competency, something you need to grow into, that's going to come with discomfort. Asking for what you want, behaviors that you want at work or at home. That comes with discomfort. Uh, being willing to admit when we've made a mistake, that's uncomfortable. So there's many things that, when, that, that require courage and having a really fulfilling career or a really fulfilling relationship 
requires the ability to act and speak and behave courageously. And our culture, it, it undermines, it undermines our well-being and it undermines our capacity to stay with discomfort to some degree. I'm not talking about wallowing in it and being swept away and gnashing our teeth, but acknowledging, just simply acknowledging without exaggerating our lived experience. It's, you know, I, f- I find that fascinating. I think for a lot of people there that, you know, that it could be quite a, quite, quite an eye opener for them. Can I ask you, I mean, how do you come across this and, and really sort of get into it? I mean, is this, had you this sort of noise, this, this sort of echo inside and, and you know, other people's I, voices in your head? Yeah. Well, let me take a, a bit of a step back how I got into this. So I used to work uh, with uh, IBM big computing company around the world. I worked in Scotland and uh, Edinburgh for eight years. I worked in Abu Dhabi in the Middle East for a couple of years, Munich for three years, and then Australia. But it didn't matter where I was. I noticed there were very, very intelligent, skilled leaders, experienced people in all of those cultures. And some of them, when the pressure was on, the heat was on, when the airline booking system had gone down and uh, the phones were ringing and there's a lot of excitement in the office. There were some managers who could really keep it together and they could get the best out of themselves and out of their teams. And then there were others who would to some degree or other lose it. They'd panic, they'd get anxious, and they would infect their teams with anxiety. And I, I was curious, what, what was made the difference? How is it that some people, they were, they were really bright people, could manage themselves so well under huge pressure and others couldn't. And I took a step back and immersed myself in the the science of human performance and human behavior. So uh, the ideas that we're talking about today, I've learned about by taking a very deep dive. I did two master's degrees in human behavior and there's an awful lot of knowledge and expertise out there. And some of it's knowledge which has been learned recently, but a lot of it comes from the past. There's a lot of uh, ancient wisdom, ancient philosophies that were across this. They, they knew a lot about the human mind. They didn't need double-blind, randomized control trials to fatten this out. So I indulged myself for about five years absorbing approaches, strategies, models that others had learned, that, that, that the rest of the world, very, very clever researchers and philosophers had identified about how the mind works and how we can, things we can practically do to skillfully navigate having a human mind in a human world. And it's a skill, Pete. Mm. Managing your human mind in this human world. If you if we leave it to chance, if we leave it to chance, we will all of us, not because we're bad people, but we just because if we don't know how, we will be swept away by both our biology, which is naturally fearful and likes to keep everyone happy, and we'll be swept away by messaging in our cultures. 
which trains us relentlessly to conform and to buy and to stay feeling good. All costs stay feeling good. And we will be victims. We will be uh, swept away in directions not of our choosing, not of our choosing. And if we are going to author our own lives, take a path of our choosing, a self-directed life, that is going to require uh, courage and skills to manage our minds and choose for ourselves what we're going to do and how we're going to show up, whether our broader culture likes it or not. Do you, do you have any sense of who or when or, you know, people decide to show up for themselves, as you say, that sort of, you yes. know, just break the pattern? Yeah, I, I think that often it actually requires a, a diagnosis. So we hear again and again that people are told to visit their doctor, oh, I've got a bit of a sore throat or something, so actually I've got bad news for you, you've got so many months to live. And when people get uh, news like that, bad medical news, when they're told that actually there's only so far they've got left, they very rapidly re-evaluate their life priorities. There's nothing quite like a kick up the bum like that to be reminded, actually, we've only got, we've all of us only got so long on this planet, but we forget it. We forget it. It's one of these other things that uh, we're not allowed to talk about, really. It's kind of looked down on. I've got a chapter in my book called The Biggest Elephant. And it refers to the biggest elephant in the room. And for my money, that's death. That we are mortal creatures. We've, we've only got, all of us, we've only got so long on the planet. And we don't like to talk about the fact that actually, at some point, it's going to come to an end. But that's, that comes at a huge price because we rob ourselves of the urgency to live lives, our own lives now while we can. So when people get uh, news that they only have so much longer to live, they often really reappraise, okay, how am I going to make the most? What really matters? What's really most important? So it's a, it's a circumstance that can really help us to prioritize urgently what we care about. The good news, Pete, is that we don't need to wait for that uh, medical de declaration to reevaluate re what's important. We can do it without getting sick. And I, I really ought to tell your listeners one, at least one way how we can do that. Please that do, yeah. Cruel. Yeah, that would be cruel. I'm going to take a very quick swig of my uh, I, I'm long curious black as well. coffee. <laughs> like, I'm curious as well. I'm going to come back to you on, on something about, you know, mm -hmm. whether this is just an episode in your entire book, this, this particular life that yeah. you have, whether there's a before and after in your opinion. Um, but perhaps, ah. we'll, <laughs> well, ah, your we'll, choice, we'll, which do you want to head off first? Oh, well, let's, let's just touch on that. I don't know if you, you mean if there's if there's an existence before we're we're born, and if mm. there's an existence after we die. Has Has Eric yes. been here before? This bag of bones or this uh, uh, version okay. of Eric? 
I have no information for or against that, Pete. I'm massively uninformed. And anything I would say would be total speculation. And In your opinion, uh, maybe. <laughs> oh, if, if I had to guess, hmm. if I had to guess, well, I, I really need some sort, of, some sort of evidence, even dilute evidence to support uh, an idea. So I'm, I'm not seeing that evidence, no. So I suspect this is it. I suspect this is it, which makes our time on Earth even more precious, even more valuable if we're not going to get a chance to repeat it. And even if we were going to get a chance to repeat it, you wouldn't get a chance to repeat this version of you, the version that was born in the year that you were born and that mm. died in the year. This, this one episode, this episode is got to be unrepeatable. So we want to make the most of it, surely anyway, regardless of what happens after. It's, it's, it's almost irrelevant mm. what happens after. Surely we want to show up as our best, as our boldest, best, most courageous selves for this life. And, yeah, hope for the best, perhaps. I mean, you say surely, and, and this may link us back through, but, I mean, it's like, not everyone wants to do that or is aware of it or is that hungry, right? You know, some people are just saying, that's not my thing or I don't feel the passion like you do. Yes. And this gets back to the, the idea of the, the fire in the belly, the, uh, the appetite, an appetite for life. I'd say uh, a lot of us can have hope beaten out of us, a hope for a better life. Because to, in order to allow yourself to entertain ideas of, of, pers- of realizing personally meaningful ambitions, you've got to have some sense that it's possible, some sense of actually I, it, it could happen. I could make this happen, that I have some agency. And some of us grow up in contexts where they're taught from a very young age that they, they are no good. They'll never amount to anything. They should be grateful for what they've got and they should keep quiet. And, you know, I, I, I will not blame anyone who's brought up in a, in a household like that for actually feeling small and, uh, and weak and helpless. You know, who wouldn't if you were soaked in messaging like that? However, there, there are more positive messages in our society. And I think I do think, uh, regardless of your situation, if you can listen to ideas which, uh, ideas which may begin to, I think your fire metaphor is, is, is a good one, because it, it, a fire start, can start with a spark. You know, it doesn't have to start with a, a furious flame. We had a lot of uh, bushfires here in Australia last year, an awful lot of bushfires. But they, they started with tiny, tiny embers. So they were, there was dry kindling, not burning at all. But it just took a spark, a floating spark, to turn that into a furious fire. And I would like to, to hope that this is the same for, for, for all of us. If there are humans... And there are, of course, there are many people who are feeling hopeless, 
helpless. They have no agency in life. That maybe through some of the ideas that uh, that I know that you share and that I share, we can help give people some hope so that they can very slowly build up their own fires and their own enthusiasm to, to craft and to develop their own lives and to, yeah, to develop meaning and to make it happen. The meaning of life for you, Eric? Well, I, I am uh, very impressed with the writings of a guy called David Benatar. David Benatar, who wrote a book called The Human Predicament. He's a philosopher from uh, South Africa. And uh, he makes the point that we often try to chase, uh, identify, you know, what is the meaning of life? And he says, it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. Instead, we should be looking for deciding what are the meanings that we are going to give our life. So rather than there being a sort of a universal meaning out there, that we should aspire to, because instead, it said we, from his perspective, we'd be better off deciding what meanings, multiple meanings, are we going to imbue our own life with? So you ask me, what are my, what's my meanings? But I'd answer with what are my meanings in life? And my meanings are to take care of my partner, Rachel. That's meaningful uh, to me. To learn and to share what I've learned. I'd love to learn. I immerse myself in, uh, in knowledge, try to extract uh, the essence of wisdom and to, to share it with others in a way that's accessible. And I, I might mention right now that I would never normally talk, Pete. We're having a very different conversation. It's the kind of conversation I would ever have in my workshops or in my coaching, or even in other podcasts. So we're going uh, quite deep here. But what I do in my work is to try to make these ideas far, far more accessible and uh, more, more practical with very simple strategies that people can do to make their lives uh, more, more courageous and more personally meaningful. So I mentioned my partner. I mentioned my work. I also get a lot of meaning from moving through nature. I love to hike in the great outdoors. That for me is deeply meaningful. And there are meanings in tasting life. So I believe in savoring experience, in pausing. So when something is, is uh, when there's sensory pleasure, and it could be a view, it could be a taste, it could be a sensation, but when there's sensory pleasure, I get meaning out of stopping and tasting and just enjoying the positive experience. That's another element of what makes my life meaningful. That's interesting. That's a choice, right? Because, you're, you know, we talk about meaning there. You've, you've yeah. chosen to have a meaning. You've chosen to have an opinion, right? Yeah. So it's, I yes. see a tree. It's a tree, factually. But actually, it's a spectacular tree, it's a beautiful tree, it's a small tree, big tree, whatever, right? So we attach a label, but it's a positive label. Have, have I got the distinction right here? Well, that's, that is right, that we do get to choose how we engage with life. So we do get to choose how we engage with what's outside in the real world, as you say, trees, uh, leaves, dogs, people, roads, 
everything. We get to choose how we relate to it. And uh, since we've gone there, we also get to choose how we relate to what's in our inner world too. We get to choose how we relate to what shows up. And developing skills of being in relationship is what will give us much greater agency in our life and can help to make life far more meaningful. If I may, I'd like to just expand on this, how we relate to sensory things in the outside world, because it, it's an antidote to that toxic uh, uh, junk, the, the junk values that we're fed by society. So society, or, or I should say advertising, a lot of media is telling us that you're, you don't have enough, tells you to focus on the lack, tells you to focus on what's missing. And the antidote to that is to redirect your attention to, to the good things in life that we already have. And this, this is ancient Stoic wisdom. I think it was Epictetus 2,000 years ago. He said, if you want to be happy, learn to want what you already have. And we have so much, Pete, today. You and I have lives that emperors of the past could not dream of. I'm talking to you and you're on the other side of the planet in real time. We've got no lag. There's no echo. I can, I can even see your, your furry face, Pete. There you are. It's just, it's, it's a sort of miracle, really. So we're living in miraculous times. Hot and cold running water medicine is extraordinary today. Uh, we've got libraries. There's the internet. And yet we're all get habituated to the good things we have. And that's normal. This is just uh, is how we, we're built as human beings. We, anything you see on an ongoing basis, anything you experience regularly, you take for granted. I do this, I might confess, Pete, with speed cameras. We've got some speed cameras around here and they're always there. And when they first showed up, I was very, very vigilant and careful about slowing down. And uh, I must admit from time to time now, I, they're just, they've just blended into the background. I forget. We take for granted the things we have. The antidote to taking things for granted is to pause and to deliberately enjoy, to deliberately savor even small things. And it turns out that repeatedly enjoying small things in life can have big consequences really big consequences. So yes, enjoying the sight of a tree, enjoying the taste of a well-made coffee, or even a chocolate biscuit. But after, most of the time when we're savoring, we're tasting something, we don't stay with the experience. We're listening to the radio, we're watching the TV, we're talking to someone, we're thinking about what we're going to do later. So a lot of us have lost the skill to actually stop and be present and to stay with even positive experience. And it's no small thing to, to develop this skill. It's got big positive consequences if we can get better at it. Well, what do you think is the, the, the okay, let's call it a skill, the, the master skill that all humans by default are 
achieving to, or striving to? What 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 is it? I mean, you mentioned happiness there. You mentioned you know connection. There's, there's several things. What, in your opinion, is the, the top of the uh, the wanted list? Oh, well, the top of the wanted list is stay alive. So what's what with absolutely at the top that's woven into your DNA and it's woven into mine is at all costs stay alive. Do not die. And this trumps all other needs. And this is a problem. Well, of course, one, it's a good thing to stay alive. Let me acknowledge that. But it's also a problem because our biology takes it so seriously that we are excessively risk averse, excessively risk averse. So there's a part of us that is always hyper vigilant for how things might go wrong. And it holds us back. There's a part of us has this better not attitude, better not. And it will even suggest to you, it will, and it takes some humility to acknowledge this, but it will even suggest to you that were you to do something and it were to go badly wrong, you'd just die. And people will say this, you know, so that if, if I ask someone out and they, they, they turn me down, oh, oh, I'd just die. And, and a part of us, it honestly believes that it would be intolerable, that it would be insufferable. It would be just ex- extraordinarily painful. And of course, the reality is it's not just asking people out. People say, oh, if I was to talk in front of an audience, uh, a big group, do public speaking, and I was to fluff my lines, oh, I couldn't bear the shame, the embarrassment. I'd just die. No, you wouldn't. No, no one has ever died from uh, fumbling lines or from being rejected. But we're, we're hugely risk averse. So we, we tend to go to extraordinary lengths to avoid risk, extraordinary lengths, because we over-prioritize. Well, we do want to stay alive, but we see risks where there are none. We're hypervigilant. That's the number one goal of every human being. To stay alive. Uh, the BGs have now stuck in my head. Thank you, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> so. Funny you mention that. I, I mentioned that in the book. That's <laughs> exactly. I I have a link to the song in the book. <laughs> Staying alive. I know. I should not be singing it for the next twenty four hours. So thank you. Um, yeah, judge. <laughs> Well, I mean, because then we talked about, you know, uh, connecting, you know, or happiness, you know, you, happiness is one and people talk about love and connection and, you know, was the, you know, the talk about the need, well, we're born with two fears, right? You're know, falling in loud noise, I think it is, so to say, um, but then saying if we don't get that love and connection, but yet, I mean, I'm, well, what's next on the needs list, put it like that. Well, well, let me say that your biology does not want you to be happy. Okay, your biology is completely disinterested in you being happy. That's what you want, Pete. But your biology is not interested in you being happy. It's interested in you staying alive and having kids. That's the the whole point of biology. Now, along the way, we've developed these minds which can have got self-awareness. We are like no other animal on earth, it seems. There seems to be some very limited, brief self-awareness in one or two animals, but in humans, it's been developed to an extraordinary degree. So you have self-awareness. Now, this comes 
with at a price. Because now when you're aware, you can now think ahead. You can plan ahead. You can recognize if you allow yourself that we've only got so long on the planet because you're, you can be aware, whoa, I see other people dying. Whoa, that's going to happen to me. That doesn't sound good. And you say, put it out of your mind. But you can also be aware that some things do make you happy. So I think what, what you, you'd like to get at is what's going to make life uh, meaningful to people. What's what's up there in the priority prioritization list? And human beings have two, two sorts of pleasure. There's sensory pleasure, which they call hedonia. But there's also, we get ple- a pleasure, not a sensory pleasure, but let's call it we, some things are worthwhile for us. It's a sort of pleasure when things feel worthwhile. And that's called, uh, the Greeks named it eudaimonia. So we get a sense of well-being from doing things that matter to us. A lot of the things that bring us well-being, they're not actually much fun. So if you're taking care of a sick child, very, very meaningful to you. But staying up all night when you're exhausted with a sick child, it's, it's hard work. It's meaningful work that you will do willingly and gladly because you love that child. But it's not fun. It's not, it's not something you'd, you'd choose on a holiday. Ah, oh, wouldn't be great if I could stay up for a couple of nights taking care of sick kids. A, a lot of learning, a lot of development is actually uncomfortable being stretched growing, a lot of it can be very uncomfortable. It can be quite hard because when we're learning, there's a phase in which we are incompetent, in which we're really not up to the mark. And that can be a very uncomfortable feeling. So I'd I'd suggest that a lot of life, a lot of what makes life meaningful, and it gets different for different people, but a lot of it is, is actually quite challenging. And let me ask you, Pete, if you look back at the times in your life where you are most proud of how you showed up, I wonder to what extent they were fun, fun and pleasurable, or if there may have been some element of challenge that they asked something of you, that it was demanding in some way. What, What comes to mind when you look back and think of the things that Actually, with hindsight, you're, you can be, without big noting yourself, you can, mm. you can be appropriately and genuinely proud of how you showed up. Uh, listen, I think you're bang on here. I mean, it's, it's, they weren't sort of roll around the floor laughing type moments. They're quite serious or whatever. And it was diverse, you know, for, from, you know, coming from diversity or, or adversity, I should say, sorry. You know, so you're right. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It's, that's a great distinction between the two. Yeah. So it's my opinion that our capacity to meet challenges well will determine to a very significant extent the quality of our lives. The better we can meet life's challenges, the ones we get that we did not ask for, but also the ones that we set, the ones that we set for ourselves, the relationships, the careers, the developing capability, the learnings, they're going to make a the better we can get at meeting those challenges too, the more of our life we can look back and be 
proud of how we showed up and the, the bigger lives all of us can lead. It matters. I might be going down another rabbit hole here, but I'm curious. Um, We're already down a rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned, you know, about really parts of our, our parts of our self awareness, and I'm I'm just as a um, as as a um, I suppose an educated view. What? How many different self parts do you think we have? Self awareness parts? Because I mean, you mentioned there, you know, you, I, we. Previously, we talked about you know the ego, the me. You know, we talked, you know, then talked about the we. So I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I've lost count now. We're at seven, eight, or nine, or something like that. That parts of self awareness, right? Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't have a, a discrete number to offer, but there are. We are multifaceted. We are multifaceted, and. I forget the quote. This is the point in the podcast where I come across as extremely clever if I could remember the words of the quote and the attribute it accurately. <laughs> but wiser men than I have said that we are legion, actually, within ourselves. We, we have, I think the expression was, we have multitudes within us. Multitudes. So we have, there are many, many different perspectives that we can entertain. But I wouldn't want us to get hung up on this idea of uh, multiple selves. We could get confused and uh, end up wondering if we're not schizophrenic or, or have multiple <laughs> personalities or something. It, we, we don't. We don't. We're just complicated beings. But there is a part of you that does endure, and it's a really important part, and it's your observer self. And that is just the same when you're a child, as it is today, that capacity to notice your experience, to notice what's happening in your inner world and the outer world. They call that the observer self. Hmm. That's interesting because that, that means there is a third entity, right? So you've got the observer person thing, the, and then you've got the inner, and then you've got the outer. You know, so there's yes. three distinct parts there for a start anyway. So Yeah, um, for a start. Yes. <laughs> we we are far more complex, far more complex than we give ourselves credit for, perhaps. Is it any wonder we find life tricky that we struggle sometimes? So I always find it I find it curious because, you know, the the environment or the position we put ourselves in to meditate, if that's your thing, is can be very similar to the position you'll put yourself in for depression. So they're both isolation. They're both retreating. They're both uh, exclusion from outside sources, right? But yet one's concerning and one's enlightening, right? So it's, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I may be being too vague here, but I, I just find it, you know, the, the body or the humans, we, we do similar things, but actually have completely different intentions. Well, th this, is a, this is a really good point you're, you're making here. So the, the behaviours that we engage in, the, the meaning behind the behaviours depends on the situation. So you could see someone running, perhaps outside, running as fast as they possibly can in one direction. Now, you don't know if they're running from a fire or if they're running towards a loved one 
that they haven't seen for a year. You can't tell. Same behavior, same action, driven by two different motives. In life, we the, so the, the approach to behavioral science that I uh, have run with and embraced, and I might just mention now, it's called ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy or Acceptance and Commitment Training, depending on the context. But this approach to behavioral science says that if we're going to lead meaningful lives, personally meaningful lives, uh, that are rich and fulfilling, then we should really aim to have more of our activities in life being behaviors which are like approaching something that we want. They're driven, they're fueled by us moving towards what we want to experience more of rather than being fueled by moving away from what we want to experience less of. So it's a key distinction in life. Things we do can be driven either because we want to experience more of it, uh, such as uh, a fulfilling relationship, or we can be driven to move away from experiences we don't want to have, such as, uh, let's say, anxiety or worry or regret. So people... When we spend, when we when we prioritize feeling good now, what we're really doing is uh, perhaps numbing ourselves to discomfort in the present. So if I'm a bit anxious say, at the end of the day and I have a drink, I mean, there's nothing wrong with a drink. Let's say I have many drinks. What what I'm doing is prioritizing not feeling the anxiety or the worry. I'm moving away from anxiety. And we can spend a lot of our lives moving away, avoiding discomfort. Perhaps there are conversations we need to have in our relationships or at work, and we can procrastinate. We can put them off. Oh, I'll put them off. Procrastination is an avoidance move. We're moving away from the discomfort of something that we, we need to do. This approach to behavioral science says, yes, we all do that. We all do that. And if we could get better at instead, during those times of challenge, reorienting and moving towards what matters most at that time, then we will lead more fulfilling lives. If we can identify what actually matters most when we're challenged, and instead of moving away, from the challenge to move uh, into it and towards what matters most. Does that make sense? Or have I been a little bit confusing there? I'm not sure if I've been rambling. No, no. I, I, listen, I, um, I, I, I understand. Well, I get it. I think, I think I get it anyway. You know, I think, you know, it is a lot of this does come down to choice. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it is always interesting, you know, it's, again, you can get really into it, I suppose, but it's the, I suppose what's playing through my head now is, you know, the Eckhart Tolle, you know, the, the power of now and, and the benefits of that. And, you know, there's, 
as you say, if we if we bring a condition, we have a glass of wine. That means you know part of it is the actual the alcohol or the, the actual the the thing, but also that's muscle memory that says when I drink this, I feel better. Uh, and also then it's a disinhibitor or whatever it is. I, I'm probably getting all my analogies mixed up here, but so you can see the addictive behavior, right? So I drink this, I feel better. I don't feel as bad as I do when I'm not. Absolutely. And we prioritize and we're encouraged by our society to prioritize feeling good now, feeling good now. Hmm. And yet, actually, if we are going to have really successful lives on our terms with whatever success means to you, that is going to require us often not to feel good now. Having those difficult conversations at work, asking for what you want from our partners and from our colleagues at work, reaching for, for bigger jobs, uh, delegation, owning up to mistakes, admitting when you, you don't know, you don't have all the answers. These are uncomfortable behaviors and it's not a time to feel good now, to procrastinate, to put it off. There are difficult things that we all need to do if we're going to grow in our personal lives and our professional lives. They are uncomfortable. But the better we can get at reorienting and taking action to do what matters most, even while there is some discomfort, and the evidence seems to show that people will have lives which will be richer and more personally satisfying. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I find it I find it so so interesting. I mean, are you of the belief that the ego doesn't exist at in the now? Well, well the, the the ego is is something that we create. Mm. So it's a creation. It, it's a sense of, it's a pervasive sense of self mm. that is fused with ideas. So it's something we create. But it, it, it's actually quite useful to have a sense of a sense of who you are, of who P is. It's it's it can be useful because it's you can attach ideas to it, useful ideas, but actually the, the, the Pete that you'd like to be is someone who is, I don't know, caring, compassionate, thoughtful. And if you can take those ideas seriously, then you will behave like that more often. We behave, Pete, like the kind of people we think we are. We behave like the kind of people we think we are. So if you think Think of yourself as someone who embodies those qualities, you are more likely to habitually show up that way. This is a useful thing. So that's your ego being useful, your sense of self being uh, useful. But we need to be careful about uh, what else we, we, we pull in to that ego. Mm. I should explain my, my ego loves to talk about ego. So, so I, yeah. it's always a hot topic for me. <laughs> it's like, um, just to circle back on your, on your previous point, I'm curious in terms of uh, when you're asking for what you want, you know, and you're sort yeah. of saying that it's part of it is, listen, it's, it's potentially fear, anxiety, all these things. Is it possible in your opinion to actually make it a pleasure base so I can ask what I want pleasurably? So uh, assuming we're sort of typically binary, either pleasure or pain based, so is it possible, do you think, to evolve your life to kind of go on, I'm 
here's what I want and I'm fantastic about it. You know, it doesn't have to be a, a hard experience. Yeah. I, I, well, it depends on the context, of course. I mean, there are certain environments, certain situations in which, yes, you can ask for what you want. And no part of you will tell you that this could go horribly wrong. No part was. So whenever I ask for an ice cream from the ice cream vendor, it's risk-free and I'm completely content and happy to do it. But no, I don't think it's possible under all circumstances to, because what you're, you're saying there is, can I really, can I have a life that doesn't require courage? Can I just feel confident, please? Can I feel 100% confident and good uh, all the time, uh, regardless of what I do? And no, we can't have that. There, there is no confidence. It's something else you mentioned earlier, which I'm, I'm going to offer another perspective to. So you're saying perhaps either, either we're uh, feeling one way or we're feeling another. We've got these two states. Uh, I have a suspicion that actually we have multiple experiences at the same time, that it's possible to be both uh, excited about something and worried and anxious and feel the spark of uh, possibility and be happy and sad and everything. I, I think our inner worlds are a bit like orchestras. There are many instruments in those orchestras. Sometimes one of them will predominate and it's very loud. If we listen carefully, there are still some others in the background that are playing. Now, that's only my theory. That's not borne out by anything I've ever read <laughs> or studied. I'm just saying I, I have a suspicion. I have a suspicion. Mm. I've, I haven't noticed it at times in life I've had, uh, when challenged, I've actually had, I've noticed that there have been quite a lot of different experiences happening at the same time. And that the better I've got at naming them, at labeling what's going on inside, each of those things, then the better I've been at processing and then choosing what I'm going to do next. Now, may I give you an example? Please. There was a, a time in life when I'd just been rejected by someone that I'd been going out with for a few months, and uh, it, it hadn't actually been going very well. But she she pulled the plug, said, no, this isn't working. Uh, let's call it a day. And as I left, I was I've had a, a, an awful lot going on in the inside. So one, I was, I was, there was anger. I was, uh, I've been rejected and I've noticed anger. I noticed loneliness at the same time. There was loneliness. There was a sense of, of being apart, not having, I just lost this relationship. We spent a lot of time together for the previous six months, four or six months. There was loneliness. There was hurt as well. And then right at the back, and it was really quiet, Pete, and I'm almost embarrassed to mention it, but right at the back, there was relief. There was also relief. It hadn't been working. It hadn't been working. And she had the courage to actually call it out. So there were, all, there were these four things. And when I was able to hear each of them, acknowledge them, oh, yeah, no, there is hurt. Yeah, I'm feeling hurt. Yes. No, there is anger. Yes, I can notice the anger. So I was able to sit with each of those experiences, one after the other. And I tell you, I've never got over a relationship so quickly as I have 
on that occasion. And I, I do put it down to the labeling of my experiences and being able to stay with each one individually, to, to hear it, to hear it. These feelings are sometimes a little bit like visitors at the door that are ringing the bell. And if you don't answer the bell, you know, go to the door, just acknowledge them, they'll keep ringing. But you don't have to let them in. <laughs> okay. When the, I'll take a risk here, when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to the front door, you don't have to invite them in. But it's a courtesy to open the door and acknowledge, ah, yes, I see you, I hear you, uh, I acknowledge that you're there. And if we can do this with our experience, our inner experience, we don't have to let it in and let it dominate our lives. So you don't want to stay angry, stay hurt. But it is important when we experience these things to acknowledge our lived experience. It really is happening. It's, it's a way of living honestly, I think, with yourself to acknowledge your real life experience. It's chosen, and it right? helps us. Yeah, and it helps us move ahead. It, you know, it helps us then choose. And now, what are we going to do? Just wondering whether to blow up time here and say, "Does this all exist? Does your future exist already?" I mean, are we if we're multi-dimensional and all the shapes and forms and all the different parts of us exist? You know, does your future self exist? Do you think? I have no idea, Pete. <laughs> I, I really, I really. <laughs> No, no idea. There are some some time scientists that say that all possible futures, there's a multiverse, isn't there? This is an idea that everything that could exist does exist. But I, I haven't put any effort in thinking about that. And I am overwhelmingly concerned with this path and crafting and authoring my my own life in this reality concerns an interesting word to put onto that though my concern i mean it could be i'm inspired by what's going on in your reality oh, or i sorry yes no the word concern uh, i it means that i'm interested in in this case yes okay. people sometimes use the word concerned me or worried by or it concerns hmm. me uh i'm using it in a, a broader sense it's what interests me yeah it's yeah. where my my attention is yeah just want to again circle back to something you're saying you know you're talking about there you know the, the uh true to myself and then versus what others expect of me and then we sort of slipped in one in between and saying you know who you think you are or your you know your own truth if you like so we've uh, and you sort of intimated slightly that actually it's maybe not just red pill blue pill it might be that the sliding scale and different parts of us are on the sliding scale have i picked that up correctly yes Yes, that's right. I think there's a sliding scale to, to most things in life. There's, there's very little that's black and white. We like to say, oh, we like to simplify. It just makes it easier for our brains to think, oh, someone is he's a good person or a bad person. Well, uh, actually, everything, all qualities are on a, a continuum, a sliding scale. So, yes. Hmm. And in regards to um, sixth sense? Do you, where do you, where do you fall on that? No, I, 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 I so I, I, I like to, I need a certain amount of evidence, a certain amount, 
to believe in anything. So I'm very willing to believe in anything whatsoever, but I just need some sort of evidence. I'm not seeing any. But mind you, having said that, I used to think that the humans had five senses, uh, but actually even biologically, we have something like nine. So we all absolutely have a sixth sense. Uh, but you're referring, I think, to some sort of uh, yeah, intuitive uh, extrasensory uh, perception, perhaps? Well, that- I suppose intuition, if you like. I mean, I, I suppose anything from, I don't know, no. gut feelings to... No, no, totally. But we, we all absolutely have an uh, intuition, mm. uh, but intuition is a, is a, is a, is a form of decision-making. That we make, so we it's just not a sense. Dis- no, I don't think so. I wouldn't say it's a, a sense. It is a decision making. You will it, it. So the way I think of intuition, that's maybe, maybe the only, I may be the only one who thinks of it this way. But I think of intuition as a decision making that all of our experience is brought to bear. We're in a situation, and some of our mind weighs it all up and says, "Have we seen this before? Have we been in a situation?" at some point in the past when something like this was happening and how did that end up? And our minds come to a conclusion and it offers us its result and it will do that with a feeling. They say that all all decision-making requires feeling. So there are some people that any time you make a decision, I'm gonna do this or not do that, that is actually conveyed to your mind with a feeling. Some people, unfortunately, have had car accidents where a part of their brain has uh, removed their ability to feel. And they are unable, some of them, to make decisions. So there are very interesting stories of doctors seeing people and they, they come into the office, they sit down, they, they can talk intelligently and fine, but they know that they've lost this feeling, they don't have feeling, and they'll say, Great, what time should we have our next uh, appointment? And the patient is unable to decide. And the theory is that they're unable to decide because when you and I make a decision, oh, does, does Thursday work for me? At some level, hmm. we get a feeling that says, yes, yeah, go with that, do that. So all decision-making actually requires uh, an ability to feel on the inside. And I'd suggest that's what uh, intuition is. It's a very rapid form of thinking, which results in a feeling, a feeling which could be in your gut, a go or no go decision in your gut. That's super interesting, isn't it? Because you might just consciously remember why why your brain so it's down there someone said because i don't know a tree fell when you were three but you don't consciously remember it, but the subconscious says listen i've put this all together it's not a good thing because of x y and z you just can't quite recall yes yes yeah. absolutely yeah i think most of our decision making we don't really know why we we make the decisions i think that the bulk of it is outside of our awareness we we make up stories afterwards after the fact as to why we did it but uh, a lot of it is just stories. Hmm. I just I want to be conscious of time. I don't want to take you. We've been talking here for quite some time, gone down rabbit holes. So, um, well, first of all, let me ask you, I mean, if, if you were to describe your fire in the belly, what, what would that be, Eric? 
oh, what inspires me and excites me and gets me up and going, it's, it's again, it's a number of things. So there are many things that uh, inspire me. I am inspired to, to continue to learn. Mm. I, I'm nourished by making discoveries of how things work. I'm especially interested in the human mind. I'm also inspired by sharing this, sharing what I've learned with others and seeing the difference that it can make. It's, it's such a thrill to speak to people after my courses. I don't just mean at the end of the course, because everyone has a good time on the course, but I mean a week, a month, three months later, and to hear of the, the changes that people have made in their lives. I'm inspired by, by my partner, Rachel, such a uh, meaning, and I'm inspired to be the best version of, uh, of a partner that I possibly can be with her. And I am continually inspired, and I have to fight this urge just to leave work and go outside and go walking and uh, just move through nature. There's, I've got this ongoing drive to be outside moving through the natural environment. We're blessed here, Pete, by being next to the sea. Whales are passing the coast right now. It's peak whale migration season. We've got kangaroos jumping around the bush. We've got echidnas, which are a sort of hedgehoggy type thing. There's a, there's a lot of life. We've got parrots in the trees. And I just love hiking through nature and just observing the natural life. And that's another one of the things that uh, inspires me. I've got a random question that I came up with at the start, and, and I will let you go after this. Um, <laughs> what, what are you putting on your headstone? Uh, well, well, you're assuming there's going to be a headstone, and I, I think okay. I'd much rather be uh, be d- deposited at sea <laughs> and, and, and used to, to feed the fish. But what would I like to? Well, I, I've actually got a, a very a very humble sort of. Uh, approach it because I, th- I think we all take ourselves far more seriously than is deserved. We're all here briefly on the planet and we and while we're here it's tempting to think that we matter so much we matter hugely to the planet. but it's a stoic idea from Stoic philosophy that it, it doesn't matter whether you are an emperor or a, uh, a mule driver we all end up in the same, place and all of us will be forgotten and quickly right quickly so i would prefer to kind of get used to that idea now that actually i i'm going to be forgotten and it's okay so i'm not going to put an awful lot of thought into temporary inscriptions on bits of rock which will not last <laughs> uh, fleeting no, creatures oh, that's, that's uh, in, yeah <laughs> It's, it's all temporary and all partly meaningless unless, unless we choose a meaning. <laughs> like, it, ex- exactly, exactly, yeah. We need to choose uh, how we're going to make this brief experience on this extraordinary experience, this mm. fabulous life, human life. It's such a wonderful thing to have, but it is brief and it's up to us to imbue it with meanings. Mm. Dallas, Eric, where can people hunt you down, track you down, follow you, buy the book, any of the above? Oh, well, it, people who are in Australia, if any of your listeners are in Australia, you can buy a signed copy of the book from my website, 
ericwinters.com.au. Everyone, though, can download the first uh, chapter or so of my book for free from that website, ericwinters.com.au. And I'd make the prediction that if you like the first page, if, you, if the first page resonates with you, you don't need to read anymore, then you'll love the book. And that's available on Amazon and all good and bad online booksellers. You'll be able to my book. And if people really like uh, the kind of ideas we've been talking about, uh, do connect with me on LinkedIn or Facebook. And my handle is the same on both of those. I'm at ericwinters.com.au. Beautiful, beautiful. Is there a final message you'd like to leave with people? May I share a Winston Churchill quote? Please do. I love this quote. So I spend all my time helping people to develop courageous lives. And Winston Churchill apparently said, this is attributed to him anyway, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. The courage to continue. And that's our challenge in life. The courage to continue, to continue showing up as the kind of people we'd really like to be in our personal lives and in our professional lives. Day of C's, courage and choice. There you go. That's what it's all about. Agreed. Perfect. Eric, thank you very much. And no doubt we'll speak again at some point. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without our great guests taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So, all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly, and be the mightiest version of you.